Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Revelation. Four documented Great Awakenings uh, in, in America, uh, starting around 1730, 1740. The first Great Awakening culminating around 1750, which is why we have this date as a demarcation. Uh, and, and the last revival, the fourth Great Awakening, was in the 70s and 80s with the Jesus Movement. And we're due for another revival. We're due for another Great Awakening. And uh, we're praying for that to happen right now in our nation. As you look around the world today, you can see the desperate need for Jesus. Unfortunately, as you look around the church today, you can also see a desperate need for the Holy Spirit to revive congregants. Today, Pastor Gary will be reminding you that the same Holy Spirit that converted you from darkness to light wants to continue that work of holiness in your life. Don't grieve or quench the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. He wants to change you and use you to bring others into his kingdom. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Revelation chapter 3 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. In these chapters 2 and 3, Jesus dictates a letter to seven different churches that are located in Asia Minor, this small little spot here, uh, magnified here, seven churches starting with Ephesus, and it's almost like a postal route going in a circular direction from Ephesus all the way down to Laodicea. These are literal churches in the first century. These are literal letters that were dictated to the pastors of these churches, intended to be read to each of these churches. And when we read through these seven letters to the seven churches, we can draw a spiritual application based on the truths that Jesus revealed here to these specific literal churches. But these churches also form a picture. They form a picture of the timeline of church history. And basically, this is the timeline of church history represented by each of these different churches. So Ephesus, from 33 to 100 AD, 33 is roughly the year that Jesus rose from the dead, ascended back into heaven. The New Testament church was born. 100 AD is when the last of the apostles died. That ended that apostolic age. Smyrna, 100 to 312 AD. 312 starts a new time period because uh, 100, the last of the apostles dies. 312 AD, Constantine the emperor has this epiphany, this revelation of Christ. He gets saved. He has a conversion experience, and he gives Christianity favored status in the Roman Empire in 312 AD. Another emperor in 380 AD, Theodosius, will actually make Christianity 
the state religion, which will morph into 606 AD, the Roman Catholic Church. That starts the next. Uh, so we go from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamos. Thyatira starts this next phase of church history with the Roman Catholic Church. But then an event happens in 1517 AD, October the 31st, 1517, a German uh, Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther takes issue with the Roman Catholic Church that he's a part of. He posts his 95 theses, his objections to the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. He posts that on the castle door church, the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany, and thus the Protestant movement began. Protestant has in its root protest. It was a protest to the Roman Catholic Church and the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. And thus, you know, here we are today as a result of the Protestant Reformation in 1517 AD. And then that leads into the Church of Sardis. And then 1750 starts a, a new time period in church history. It is roughly the time period of the first Great Awakening. And I mentioned last week that there were four documented Great Awakenings uh, in, in America, uh, starting around 1730, 1740. The first Great Awakening culminating around 1750, which is why we have this date as a demarcation. Uh, and, and the last revival, the fourth Great Awakening, was in the 70s and 80s with the Jesus movement, and we're due for another revival. We're due for another Great Awakening, and uh, we're praying for that to happen right now in our nation. But unfortunately, what has happened is after the Great Awakening, 1750, the first Great Awakening, the Church of Philadelphia represents that as the evangelical church. But then in the 1900s, there was a a turn to liberal theology. And so the last two churches, Philadelphia and Laodicea, you'll notice they go into the end of the age. The Church of Philadelphia started that time period of church history, roughly around 1750, the time of the first great awakening, and is still active today. I would say that we are a part of that stream of Christianity, evangelical Christianity, uh, and, and that is what Jesus considers to be the true church, modeled by the Church of Philadelphia. But the Church of Laodicea that we're going to look at today is also um, still a modern reality to the condition of the church today. And what we ended up happening here in church history is that there, in the church age, there, was, there were two streams that diverged. And you have the church of Philadelphia that represents the evangelical church, and then you have the church at Laodicea that represents the apostate church. Some of your Bibles have a, as a foot, as a uh, subtitle say the lukewarm church. I think it's worse than that. I mean, it, the word lukewarm is in here, but it's really the apostate church. And so we're going to be looking at this last one uh, today, the church in Laodicea. So I'm going to start reading here in chapter 3, starting at verse 14, uh, down to the end of the chapter. Uh, but let's first pause and pray together. Lord, we come before you now thankful for your grace in our lives, and as we look into this last of the seven letters to these churches, we pray, even as each of these letters said at the end, that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches today, that we would be mindful of these things that you would warn us about, that we would take to heart these words, not as just something that you inspired John to write in the first century, but something important for us to grasp and to learn even in our day. So help us through this study tonight, Lord. We give you praise and thanks. We glorify you in the house of the Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. And everybody said, 
Amen. Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 14, Jesus dictating this letter here. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. To the churches. All right, so as we've been doing through these seven letters, a little bit of the historical background so we can get a bit of a context uh, as to this particular church. We move now on the map on this circular route from Philadelphia to Laodicea. We're traveling about 40 miles southeast here in Asia Minor, which is in modern Turkey. Laodicea was founded by Antiochus II around 246 BC, and it was named after his wife, Laodice. It was a wealthy city. It was located along a major Asian trade route. It was situated in the Lycus Valley, and it was known for a breed of sheep that produced glossy black wool and it was used for the manufacturing of fine, expensive coats. You know, all of this background is important because Jesus is going to use some of this as a play on words in his rebuke of them. So keep all this in mind. Laodicea was also well known for its medical school. The Laodicean physicians had developed a salve for curing eye diseases that is still used today in eyewash, better known as boric acid, discovered right here in Laodicea. But despite its wealth, and it was wealthy because of these particular items that they had invented here or that they were known for, the glossy black wool and this particular eye salve, despite its wealth, uh, fresh drinking water was scarce and it had to be piped in. It had to be delivered by way of an aqueduct from a city to the north called Hierapolis. And there was a hot spring in Hierapolis where they would then, by way of this aqueduct, bring the water from the hot spring in Hierapolis down from the north into Laodicea. And by the time it arrived in Laodicea, the water from the hot spring in Hierapolis was lukewarm. Okay? All of this is... All of this is significant. The background is important to understand because the language that Jesus uses here is intentional. The first, in the first century, when this letter was written, the population of Laodicea was around 17,000 people. 
Today, this city, Laodicea, in Arabic is called Eskihasar, meaning old castle. Biblically, this particular church, Laodicea, is mentioned four times in the book of Colossians, but no other details about this church or about this city exist. Paul even also mentions some unknown letter that he had written to the Laodiceans in Colossians 4.16. He mentions it, but we just don't have any record of it. So here is a summary of this um, letter that Jesus wrote as we've been summarizing each of these letters. Uh, Jesus introduces himself with a title in, in each of these letters. He has a commendation, he has a complaint, and he has a reward uh, that he mentions in these different letters. His title here in this letter to the Laodiceans is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. He mentions it right there when he refers to himself in verse 14. When he says of himself that he is the Amen, he simply means that his words are reliable and true. It is a word that indicates assent or confirmation of something said. Amen can also be translated verily, or I tell you the truth, or so be it. So even when we pray, and we typically will end by saying amen, we're just coming into agreement. We're saying, so be it. And Jesus identifying himself as the amen is saying that he is reliable and true. And he calls himself also the faithful and true witness uh, because his testimony is accurate. It's an accurate revelation of God's will. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is not the revelation of John. This book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in Revelation 1.5, Jesus was called specifically the faithful witness because of his reliable word. And finally, he also refers to himself here in this letter as the beginning of the creation of God. Uh, and NIV says the ruler of the creation of God. And basically, he says it this way because all things were created by him and for him, Paul tells us in Colossians 1.16. And it is also a unique title that is a clear statement of his preexistence. For him to be the one who was the beginning of creation means that he existed before the creation of the world. So it's a statement of his preexistence before his birth in Bethlehem. When it comes to the commendation, the good thing that Jesus has to say about this church, not a single good thing. This church doesn't have one notable quality. Jesus has nothing good to say about this church, but he has some complaints. And here we go. The complaints start with the word lukewarm. Now, again, this is a play on words because the water, the fresh water that was piped down from Hierapolis to the north from a hot spring ended up being lukewarm temperature by the time it got to Laodicea. And things that are lukewarm are not typically palatable. I mean, a, a good hot cup of coffee is delicious, and so is cold brew. You know, you can have your coffee hot, you can have it cold, but a lukewarm cup of coffee is disgusting. That's disgusting. And, and so is a lukewarm Christian, by the way. Disgusting to God. And that's why he says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. That's how disgusting he finds lukewarm Christians. He said, I would rather that you're hot or cold. You know, if you're hot and you're on fire for the Lord, then great. And if you're cold, well, at least, at least God has something to work with. But being in the middle, having one foot in the church and one foot in the world, being lukewarm is of no advantage to the kingdom. 
and God finds it distasteful. Uh, in his commentary in the book of Revelation, a Calvary pastor in Albuquerque, Skip Heitzig, defines a lukewarm person with the following characteristics, seven things that he mentions. A lukewarm Christian is one who straddles the fence spiritually. Number two, has a conscience that is rarely touched. Number three, doesn't take Jesus or the Bible seriously. Number four, doesn't take sin or the lost world seriously. Number five, is erratic and sporadic at fellowship, not making it a priority. Number six, doesn't let the Bible serve as the guide for life. Number seven, has no witness to others. Jesus rebukes this church for being lukewarm. And in essence, he's also saying about them in his rebuke that they are self-sufficient. They are self-sufficient. Why is that a bad thing? Well, because when one is self-sufficient, you're not God-dependent. And we pride ourselves in being self-sufficient people. And there, there is an admirable aspect to that, but the downside to that is one tends to be independent and prides himself or herself in not needing anybody. And that's, that's detrimental to a person because we all need relationship and we especially need the Lord and we need to be connected to him and dependent upon him. Well, in 60 AD, there was an earthquake that uh, pretty much demolished Laodicea and the government stepped in with some stimulus money. <clears throat> True story. And they said, we will rebuild your city. And the Laodiceans said, no, thank you. We have enough money ourselves because of the industry of this glossy black wool and the ISAV. They were a very wealthy city. They said, we don't need government funds and we're going to rebuild our own city, which they did. And again, it's admirable, a very entrepreneurial spirit that the Laodiceans had. But what happened is it infiltrated the church so that when Jesus is giving this letter to the church at Laodicea, they had bought into that same kind of self-sufficiency. It was a proud thing. It was saying, we don't need anybody. We're the captain of our own ship. We're the master of our own destiny. And we clearly don't need God either. And this is what God was calling them out about. You pride yourselves in being self-sufficient, when in reality, what you're saying is you don't need anybody and you especially don't need me. And he rebukes them for their self-sufficiency. This independent streak that they had led to an overestimation of themselves and an underestimation of God, as if we know better and we can control our own lives and we can make our own decisions. Thank you very much. And so Jesus rebukes them for this. And instead, he calls them here these words, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. He uses these words to describe their spiritual condition. Despite how wealthy they were materially, he said, you're you're wretched, miserable, and poor. You, You don't even see it. You might be materially well off, but he said, as far as I'm concerned, in your walk with me, your spiritual relationship with me, you're wretched. You're miserable, and you're poor. You're bankrupt. You know, real wealth is being wealthy in the Lord. I mean, real wealth is being wealthy in a relationship with the, the richness of a walk with Christ is much more valuable than the material possessions of this world. Because you can lose everything in this world and still have Jesus. But if you lose Jesus, you've lost everything. 
And so he rebukes them for this. He says, you, you know, you pride yourselves in, in, in being so wealthy and materially prosperous, but he said, in reality, as it relates to your walk with me, you're wretched, you're miserable, and you're poor. And then he also adds here, you're blind and you're naked. And again, a play on words here, because they were known for their eye salve. He says, well, you, you're really known for helping people with eye infections, but let me just tell you, again, as it relates to me, you're blind. You're blind and you're naked. Again, the black wool industry is something that produced very expensive clothing. But, but he says, you know, you might walk around with beautiful wool coats and stuff, but in reality, you're, you're just, you're, you're naked before me. You're exposed before me. So Jesus complains about these things. And this is why Jesus says here in the text in verse 18, this is why he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. Gold refined in the fire is just a play on words. It means a pure faith that you might be rich in the real sense. And he says in verse 18, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And the white garments is a, is a picture of being clothed in righteousness. He says, you know, you pride yourselves in, in this glossy black wool clothing, but what I really want for you is to be clothed in my righteousness. He says, and, in the rest of verse 18, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. In other words, their eye salve could not cure their spiritual blindness like Jesus can. So he challenges them there in verse 18. But look, you know, despite the fact that he has nothing good to say about them, and he has a lot of bad things to say about them, the Lord still has a heart for these people. That's why he says in verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. He still calls them to repent. It's not like he completely discards them. There's still a place for them if they would just simply humble themselves and repent because he wants a relationship with them. Even the most wayward person Christ died for and wants a relationship with. And that's why he adds there in verse 20, a very familiar verse that we often quote, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Now this this verse there, behold, I stand at the door and knock. I mean, we have songs out of it in Sunday school, but there was actually a painting that I'm sure most of you are familiar with. You probably have seen, how many of you have seen this painting before? Yeah. So it was painted in 1942 by a guy by the name of Warner Salmon, and the original one looked a, a, very different, and it was painted by Holman Hunt in 1853, but uh, Warner Salmon came along in 1942, and he painted this painting based on Revelation 3.20 of Jesus standing at the door and knocking, and uh, most of you might know this, but in the painting, he intentionally left a doorknob off of the door. There's, there's no way for Jesus to open this door because the idea is if you really want relationship with him, he's standing at the door knocking. You have to open the door and let him in. You have to open the door and let him in. He's not going to barge his way in. He's not going to force his way in. And so Solomon intentionally did not want to paint a doorknob onto the exterior of the door because the emphasis is on, behold, I'm standing. God is doing all that he can to reach you, but you have to open that door from the inside. You have to let him in. He's, he's standing there ready to come in, but you have to let him in. 
So back to the summary, the reward that he mentions here at the end of this letter is that uh, to those who overcome... Thanks for listening today to Cornerstone Connection. This book of Revelation that you've been studying with Pastor Gary is one that many have studied and analyzed, tried and tried again to pinpoint on a timeline. When will Jesus come? When will these and times events take place? Have they already begun? There are many questions we don't have the answers to, and we won't until they happen. But there are some truths that we can hold on to. These events will happen. Jesus is returning, and he will defeat Satan once and for all. And all those who have made Jesus Lord in their life will be with him for eternity. What a wonderful time that will be. So where does that leave us? It's important to know what's coming so that you can prepare now and trust Jesus for what we don't know. We must give our lives to the Lord, and we need to give others the opportunity to do the same. We're so glad you tuned in for today's study in Revelation. If you'd like to explore more teachings from God's Word that Pastor Gary has shared, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc. There you'll also learn more about the church behind this ministry, Cornerstone Chapel. Come visit us if you're in the area. All the information you need is at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Join us next time for more here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know